find a need and fill it and do it in a, in a way that's unapologetic. There's a lot of reasons why companies and businesses and nonprofits and things of nature will fail. But if you don't risk failing, you will never succeed at anything. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today we speak with Courtney Russell, creator, activist, and social entrepreneur. At one time on a collision course with incarceration, or death, Courtney turned his life around after high school when he applied to and was accepted into a pre-med program. Though he found his calling in med school, he continued to struggle with homelessness until graduating in 2011. Courtney's resolve to overcome his difficult life experiences propelled him to be the authentic, determined, and humble leader that he is today. He's the co-founder of A2H2, a nonprofit focused on serving those experiencing homelessness in Atlanta by meeting their health needs. He runs We Up, a company built on the idea of uplifting his community through hope and empowerment. And he co-hosts the podcast Humanize, which broaches uncomfortable topics with the goal of disrupting social order and creating a more just, equitable society. Enjoy the conversation. And Courtney, one of the things I like about your work is you're you're very rooted in this authentic personal story and personal journey uh, of your own struggle as well, which is much like the work that we do at No Barriers. And so um, it's, it sounds like from what I read of your personal journey, the the route to becoming a, a, you know, to going to medical school for you was was never guaranteed. It was it was a bit of luck that you ended up there. And I'm wondering if you might tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting to medical school despite all the circumstances that might have precluded your ability to get there. Um, my, my, my mother is a praying woman and my father is one that at literally had to push me out of the house to to get where I was going because I was heading straight for either death or jail. Um, growing in the community, it's really not not cool to to be educated because you fear what you don't know. And individuals that look like me just have we have had to accept I don't know if this is HBO Showtime, but we had to accept the bullshit for so long. You know, I've always felt as though I should be living or experiencing life on the other side of the tracks. And so while I was in and and living in and around poverty, I always looked and felt as though what else is going on over there? You know, like, why are, why are white people so happy? Like what makes it so that there are not too many, that the only way out out of of these situations is through basketball or rapping or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I was not 
one of those individuals that enjoy to do that too much. And however, I like to read, you know, I like science, you know, and so I had to kind of not dumb myself down, but not enjoy what I want to enjoy to put on a persona of being cool, you know, and so when I was um, just doing a lot of ignorant things, my mother and her wisdom um, signed me up for med school, you know, hmm. and um, I had a couple of credits from undergrad and it, I got into a, a pre-med program, a very intense pre-med program. And if you passed it, you got interest into medical school. Hmm. And so I said, all right, mom, just to shut her up, I said, you know what? I'll do it. All right, whatever. I, whatever you want me to do, I'll try it. That is so present. That's the way my kids respond to me. Dad, whatever. Okay, just shut up. I'll do it. Yeah, please yeah. stop bugging me. That's so effective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, were you in Atlanta at this time? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Atlanta. Okay, okay, okay. great. Yeah. Grew up in Atlanta. All right. I'm really curious, Courtney. How are your parents? How did how, they seem really psyched on education as well? What yeah. was what was their perspective? I mean, they're immigrants, man. I'm the first one um, for my, my parents to grow up and were born in America. And so the immigrant mentality is one of education is the only only key. We came over here. We came from the Caribbean for us to solidify our name, you know, and me and my father were really close. You know, he is like that. He was that guy. and He is that guy to me, you know, in my life who made me the entrepreneur that I am just 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 mentally, you know, and just. Russell has to be etched in stone. You know, when you leave here, if you get an A minus, why couldn't you have got an A plus? What did that guy do to make sure that he got a better grade than you? Your name is Russell. Know who you are. And so it, it was, it's always been uh, it was a juxtaposition between my mom with love everybody, hold them close. And my dad like roll over everybody. You are a king. You know, know who you are. I didn't struggle this much and we're living in this poverty for you to be average. Even before I wanted to, I knew I wanted to do social justice. I knew I couldn't come back home, just a white coat. I had to come home bigger than life almost, you know? And so when I fell into to homelessness and social justice work and, and working for marginalized individuals, it, it gave me purpose. My, my, my business partner, um, I tell him all the time, man, like, thank you. If, if it wasn't for what we built, I don't even know if I would have even succeeded as a physician, because I quickly saw that medicine is a business, you know, and medicine is is not built. It's just another system of oppression for people of color. And while being in there, I felt really hypocritical. I felt like I'm, I'm here and individuals that really need me are in the streets. They're dying. And I, unless I risk my life for them, I'm, I haven't succeeded idea that okay I'm, i gotta work through the system even though it sounds like it didn't feel quite right you know what i mean like it's a kind of a a system that's riddled with hypocrisy but yeah you gotta work your way through the existing system so that you could make some kind of change mm. in your community in the world did you have that right at the beginning or were you learning that as you went along through med school that's a great question in the beginning i was uh, i was lost I was trying to be something that I was not living in a place that that's a riddle with a mindset of hopelessness, you know? And so the things that we prioritize are things that are not going to leave the type of legacy that's going to uplift a culture, you know? And so we, 
I, I, I've always felt out of place. This is the first time in my life that I feel like I'm at home. You know, I'm, I'm living a reality that my, it's, it's me. And it's less about, see, the thing about me and money is you can always have money, but you, you can't always have purpose. You know, you can't always feel as though you're doing something in your life. And I, I've never felt like I was doing something purposeful in my life until I created um, these two companies. Hmm. Right. When everything seems hopeless, how do you teach people to still have hope? Leadership by example is what David and I believe in. You know, representation is, is huge. When you look throughout throughout time into present day, when you see someone that looks like you, who comes from where you come from, who, who speaks things that you can resonate with, it feels attainable, you know? And so when you have someone that looks like me who has become a doctor, Did you always have someone have that? that looks like my business partner who has become an entrepreneur, you know, and we are walking this walk towards liberation, there is someone who can do it better than us, who just doesn't have hope. You know, they, do, they feel as though like, to become a doctor, there are no doctors that look like me. And the doctors that look like me have separated themselves so much that they don't, they're not like me anymore. You know, and so I think representation leads to, to hope. You know, it always has to be someone to, to, to jump out and say, you know what, I'm going to do it. When you talk about slavery, it had to be someone who felt different about slavery or we would have still been in slavery today because it was a law. You know, and someone said, you know what, that's not normal. It was, a, it was normal. It was a normal existence to wake up a slave for slaves and say, OK, I'm going to make the best out of this life. Those people who are willing to die for the abnormality of freedom were, were outliers back then. You know, and so I think David and I are the outliers that are going to lead a culture that needs that kind of fearless representation to make it normal to 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 not live in poverty, to not drink water filled with lead, you know, to not live in a, a place that you have to or, or go to or worry about your education because you your zip code dictates where you will live and die you know uh, your health care you can't get health care because of your zip code you know like all of these systems have been normalized to be oppressive and so when you have individuals who represent where you come from and look like how we look who are talking differently now we start to normalize success from a liberatory standpoint, instead of success from being like, oh, he went to jail now, now that's, that's gangster. No, you know what's really gangster? Intelligence. You know, how to balance a checkbook, you know, how to, who, who, to, 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 to navigate the stock market. That's really what is, is popular, you know? And so normalizing liberation is a mission that should be and is done from um, David and I with our companies. And back to you, I mean, so talking about hopelessness or hopefulness, you you obviously are a hopeful person. You Maybe you got that from your parents. And to get through med school, you got to be hopeful. One, you got to be super gifted. You got to be driven and have full of energy. And and you have to have hope because you got to be able to see the future, right? So you you somehow got it. <laughs> you got you to gotta kind of be delusional too, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, sure. that's true. Yeah. yeah. 
You have to, you have to feel there like, you go. There's your next slogan for your yeah, t-shirt. You have Delusion to is the foundation of, uh, of, of hopefulness. It, it has to be because there's some, there's some times where it's, it's dark, man. You, you can't see, you, 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 you don't see the forest for the trees, you know, like you're, you're, you're really, how am I going to get through this situation? I am living in my car right now, but I walk into a hospital with affluent people. How do I stay focused on a diagnosis? How do I stay focused and get through and pass my exam, pass my boards? What am I going to do? You got to stop. You got to, you know what? <laughs> I got it. I Tell got us it. how you wound up in your car. Oh, man. If that's okay to talk about. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm very I'm open book, man. Um, when when I came back from med school, you know, um, I was, you know, you feeling yourself. You feel as though you can do what you want, say what you want. Me and my me and my parents got into an argument. I was disrespectful, and God just, you know, I left the house. I left. I said, you know, I don't need this, and I left. And it was the greatest thing. My father told me, you know, you leave. Don't expect me to run after you. Don't expect to come back. It, it is what it is. You can live with your car, and the pride that I had, like. Okay, cool. I figured out. And so when I was living in the car, I think that was the, the, the best to worst moment in my life. I had to literally lose everything to start to gain everything. Because if I, I felt like I, if I stayed where I was, I, was, I would have been entitled. I would have been an arrogant person. I would have been a person that forgot where I've come from, my community. I would have gained a level of success and, and left individuals behind. And so as I'm waking up next to a dumpster, looking out of my car window, putting on my shoes, having taken a shower in two, three days, throwing on a white coat, trying to get extra shifts to shower in the hospital, putting on my Jordans, going in there, you know, like it, it gave me a perspective like, you know what, there may be other people out here like me. Because the assumption is once you're homeless, oh, I don't know what you did with your life, you know? And so I, I guess it set me on a path that I'm walking right now. So I always said, oh, dad, thank you. Thank you. You know, so for me, I ended up homeless as a, I think as an act of God, man, to be honest. And I would have, going back, I never changed anything that happened in my life up until almost dying because it, it put me on a path that either you work for liberation or you die a nobody. Mm -hmm. Those are my only options in life, you know? So at the end of the day, the homeless part of my story is actually the most empowering part of my story because I don't think I would have the perspective I have if I didn't see, I mean, people serve homeless people on Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I got an intimate look into the hopelessness and the eyes of a sex worker or a, a mother with, with, with three kids living next to a dumpster, roaches and rats, you know, like I, I intimately stayed there. I stayed at a homeless shelter sometimes, you know, um, just knowing that from an intimate level gives you a perspective that, you know, what else can happen to me? Now, were you like too embarrassed or prideful or? You're just like, I don't want to air my dirty laundry. Like, so you probably, I'm wondering if you told people about your situation. 100%. Right? Or is it just too much? No, 100%. It's not too much. It's never too much. 
people deserve to hear a story because with me hearing my story, it may may show you that there are other individuals out here and whatever level of success that I've, I've, I've gotten today, you can get that and more. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a job of mine to educate, to always speak from a place of authenticity yeah. and just bear it. You know, I'm, I, when people ask me, why don't I expect individuals to call me Dr. Russell? It's not because I'm ashamed. I'm, I feel very blessed to have gotten education to open the doors, but I'm more of an artist. You know, I feel like I'm more, uh, I'm more than a doctor. I think that that doctor is putting me into a box and I've used the, the MD to, to open doors for individuals. It's not for me to, to be happy about education that I've got. I'm blessed. I'm very happy, but I have to transcend medicine in order to save the lives that I want. So my name is, and my title is Courtney Russell, social entrepreneur, civil activist. I hold that more important and proud than an MD. Yeah. I mean, so sticking with med school for just a little bit, you must have had both incredibly positive experiences and some negative experiences through that process. Yeah. Right. Like you must have, I imagine had some good mentors, right. But you also probably had some stuff that pissed you off along the way. I remember in, in your podcast, you were talking about something with sickle cell anemia. Yeah. So like people that were real disrespectful, so to talk about the gamut of both of those. Wow. You see, I didn't have too many mentors. Actually, my patients were my mentors because that wor- the world that is medicine is not one of, it, it's like the army. <laughs> People only see the, the good parts. Oh my God, you're a doctor. You're this, you must be really, the power that you get from other individuals is not the same power that a first year, second year person gets while you're in medical school and you're trying to go through. And so it's do or die. It's like you have to know what you know or you're going to get ran over. And so every day I laced up, it was like we we're playing ball. You know, some days I get dunked on, other days I, I'm doing the dunking, you know. And so, so I didn't really have any mentors, but I can always, like the sickle cell um, example, there were so many more where I had to fight for patients and I always got in trouble for spending a little bit too much, too much time with patients really getting to know them because I love relationships. I feed off of that. I can go in there and get the diagnosis in two minutes. But the reason that people of color feel so manipulated and exploited by the practice of medicine is because we've been exploited and manipulated by medicine, you know? And so it's simple. And, and so if I can go in there and put them at ease during a most vulnerable time in their life, I think that's my job and my duty. Did they teach you that or, did, no. is, that, or is that not really part of the med school no. training? The only time that it's okay is when your money is representative of the time that I can spend with you. So if you come in there with the insurance, like I can take my time and finesse and massage a diagnosis, but if you in there on some Medicaid, yo, bruh, this is what it is. I need to get reimbursed. I don't have time to waste. I'm in and out. How can you monetize the health and wellness of someone in the most vulnerable period when obviously if someone comes in there on Medicaid, they may need more time because they don't see a doctor as much. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have kidney disease, you can have a broken, an ingrown toenail. That's 30 minutes out the gate. 
You know, now I, I need to know family history. Oh, we doing that? Oh, you have cancer? Now we in there for an hour. But I can. There is no way I can spend that much time with one patient because money is is is, is running up. But that person needs that much work because they're literally dying. And so it's just it, it's it's. I want to create a system, or I will create a system that gives whether you're affluent or whether you're poor, the same quality healthcare. They need the same time. They deserve the same type of attention. And so I saw that a lot. And that was a huge problem for me. A huge problem for me. I mean, and I saw great things too, you know, like assisting in delivering babies and, and talking to families. Like that's those miracles I will never forget, you know, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to hold a, a, a MD because I would have never seen those things, you know? And however, I have to push it forward because now that I have it, I feel as though I'm a part of a system that needs to be reformed. Uh-huh. Not is the, the system is, is not a, is not horrible. It needs, it needs to be reformed, you know? And so until we do that, we can't just be comfortable and say, I appreciate the fact that I became a doctor. No, I appreciate the fact that I'm a doctor. However, there are things that needs to be done so that healthcare can reach the heights that it should reach and serve those that need to be served. I also imagine like if you're seeing that hypocrisy, you're seeing people who look like you get shot on the street. You know, there, there's a tendency to get really angry. And I know in my personal life, I know anger can consume you. How do you teach maybe young people and uh, the people that you're working with in your movement to walk that line, to navigate that line uh, between sort of gratitude and frustration. We spoke about representation before, you know, and I do get upset. See, the thing about my culture is, is, and where I come from, I love it, you know, but a lot of times we move on emotions and we make decisions that affect our life and, and sometimes irreversibly, you know. So when I get really upset on, on certain things, whether it's social justice, whether it's finance, whether it's healthcare, care, all the systems, the, the systems upon systems, mass incarceration, I think about, OK, you know what? That's why we're in business, David. This is why we have to work, you know? So let's do what we have to do. And during the process, let's make some people smile. Because if you think about slavery, you know, this is why they, they, they used to get together and sing. You know, they used to get together. Because at the end of the day, you gotta realize, laughter, smiling, is, is therapeutic. You know, that's why some of the best comedians in the world come from poverty come from hopelessness, you know? They, they learn how to laugh at their pain, literally, you know? And I feel as though when I see the injustices in the world and I think about the companies that David and I have built, I start to smile because the world doesn't even understand what is about to happen. And when I'm talking to, in the future, when we're on Forbes and, 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 and we're, um, trading on, on Wall Street and they ask, what is their motivation for you to have so much money and give so much back? I said, because I come from this, 
I would be nothing without this. And so I have to make sure that I pay it forward with everything I do. And the job of, 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 of being hopeful, that right there is a full-time job because it takes extra effort, you know, to look at something, see someone who is doing just the most egregious thing and still look at it from a place, okay, you know what? I see what you're doing. It is racist. It is all the isms. It is sexist. It is all of that. I'm going to love you regardless and show you that you're not going to hijack my emotions with your ignorance, you know, mm-hmm. because that is what the problem is. is every, every culture is, is reacting and not looking for solutions. You know, we have a, a election right now. We've had four years of, you know, a, a representation of individuals who felt like they were forgotten, you know? And I think sometimes like we don't do a good job of inclusion. It is, you should understand that the progressive agenda is the only agenda that should be, but how can you understand that if that's not your upbringing? Racism is not a genetic, there's not a genetic code for me to hate you, Eric. It's not a genetic code for that. That is a learned behavior. That is a conditioned tendency. So once we reverse manufacture that, then you start to understand, yo, okay, you know what? I may not hate you for the color of your skin. I may be afraid of you because of the color of your skin. And it shows up in protection because everyone wants to feel protected. And the system of oppression was put in place to keep in power white people. However, at the end of the day, both of us need to come together. White people have to admit, black people have to understand, and we have to start having a com- being a conversation and a grapple of what are the best next steps in order for us to coexist in this in this world, mainly the U.S. You know, so so being hopeful comes from a place of right, what else can we do? Can I should should I continue to live my 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 existence upset? Or should I say, you know what? I'm very upset with this this injustice. I'm very upset with Mr. Floyd, someone having his knee on his neck and killing him in the street like a dog. I could be very upset with that. The country showed up. Protests happened for months. Now, what is going to happen after? What are we doing for the legacy of Mr. Floyd? I don't care if he was a he was a criminal. There were systems in place that may have pushed him toward the life of crime. We will never know. I'm not talking about him being not the greatest guy. I wasn't the greatest guy. You get? But what are we going to do now for someone else to mitigate other men of color from being shot down in the street and dying? Okay? That is the legacy that we should be trying to do. Use the 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 unfortunate passing of Mr. Floyd, not continue to be upset with white men. You know, and so that's where it, 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 I I have to I don't have the luxury of my emotions because I'm trying to shift a culture. And so while I sit in my house and be upset and, 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 and mad, I leave that to, to those individuals. I'm, I am in the business of creating a solution. Well said. I wanna make sure, Courtney, that we talk about the work of A2H2. So I'd love for you to tell us uh, how you're working to combat homelessness in Atlanta through A2H2. A2H2 is a business that Dave and I do solely to eradicate poverty via healthcare and healthcare access. Um, you cannot escape poverty without and not be healthy 
or access to to healthcare, um, quality healthcare, not just checking your blood pressure, um, giving you some medication, and sending you on your way. Healthcare is all encompassing. You know, you have to understand. You have to to realize that healthcare should be a priority. Right now, we're working in Denver to to create. We're working on a mobile unit to go into certain communities around in Denver to deliver healthcare free of charge so that we can increase excess. And then, and so, so now while I'm speaking and under, and um, interacting with individuals and educating them on disease processes and, and nutrition and why it's important to eat this and why, and what does this mean when your doctor tells you this, you're starting to see that you can be empowered by your own health. You can understand that and compliance to treatment regimens and things of that nature come a lot more easy when you understand what the hell you're being treated for and why it's important. I feel very blessed to be owner operator of a, a company that can really real time give individuals the service that they deserve. And so in Atlanta, we used to, we rented out a Penske moving truck, a 26, 28 truck and partitioned it in three parts. You have triage, you have laboratory work, and you have examination room. And so a homeless or a person who's transitioning or working poor or any individual will come through free of charge and it will be like you're receiving healthcare in a clinic. And so that's what I want to replicate and we're going to replicate in Denver right now and soon hopefully across the country. And Courtney, for our listeners who are pretty far away from the experience of poverty Mm -hmm. in America and how that connects to your medical experience. Can you, uh, obviously everyone's experience is different, but can you paint a picture for us of that vast disparity? Time is money. When you have insurance and you have ability to pay, you, you, you gain a different type of excess and education and, um, and things being taken care of. When you are poor, you may not even have, so it's just two, you have working poor with insurance, you have individuals who have substandard insurance, and then you have individuals who don't have any insurance at all, right? And so if you don't have any insurance, you are only seen if, if you are damn near dying and you go to a hospital with an indigent fund. Their job really, and, and you're probably going to the emergency room, and so their only their main job is to give you the bare bones attention just to keep you alive, right? That that's their only job. Their only obligation is to keep you alive, which is great. We need ERs, you know. I'm, I'm not disparaging, but but an emergency room visit is different from a primary care visit. And so if you go in there with diabetes and your sugar is out of control, your glucose is out of control, and you're having headaches, you won't, you you about to die, this and that, they'll lower it, but they haven't addressed the reason or, or the cause of it not elevating again. And it will elevate again because you're going to eat what you need to eat to survive. Right. And so a person with no insurance is going to continually have to go back to the ER. Now you have the person with substandard insurance. They go into the emergency or they go into a clinic with their Medicaid card. They get Hey, Dave, how you doing, man? Okay, cool. Take this medication. Have a nice day. I'll talk to you later. What? So now you take the medication. You have side effects. You don't take the medication anymore. You wasted. Now you're going to die. 
because now the medication that's supposed to save your life, which you could, you're not going to take it because you don't understand why you're taking it. And you got wrapped up in work. You weren't educated on it. it the doctor didn't prioritize you. So you're not going to pr- prioritize this. It's just a downward spiral. So that's that person who got the substandard, who has substandard insurance and their time and, and the time of the doctor wasn't equivalent to like, I don't have the time or even I want to help you. A lot of doctors want to, but they just don't have the time with the backlog of patients in the back room. So you were an easy case, right? Oh, just take this metformin. Have a good day. Cool. So you're gone. Now you have the person again, who is a colleague student who wants to understand, I guess, to get some information about safe, like STD. And so they go to the doctor, they have, they have insurance. However, again, it's a thing about time. I don't have the time to really educate you on this. Just take this medication and go about your business. Now, by doing that, you probably created a public health situation because now this person don't see why it's important to wear condoms. So now they're just going crazy in, 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 in school and college, having a good time and infecting everybody. So the doctors, a lot of times, we don't understand how important it is to be what we signed, to, to do what we signed up for. Like we are front lines in a, in a public health situation. And so now we're seeing that with COVID. Like you don't have enough doctors to address this need of what's going on. And so now, unless you have the greatest insurance in the world, you can't be comfortable with COVID. You can't sit there. We can't give you. Now you have individuals dying left and right who are living with families and you tell people to social distance. It, it just it, healthcare is such a convoluted mess that that poverty and healthcare are intertwined because if you if one is not done well, poverty is going to perpetuate. And so the, the gap is going to continuously get more and more and more widened. So that's why poverty in healthcare is such a, a thing that I have to address. Because when you take, if I take money out of the equation and everybody starts to get seen, now we can really start to address, we can start to talk about liberation and equity um, because there's no equity being seen now in healthcare. Equality, I don't need equality, I need equity. So this conversation is a really meaningful circle in a way, because it was like some of the stuff you were talking about maybe like a half an hour ago, the idea of just treating people isn't enough. You got to educate them. You got to get them to trust you, to see you as an ally to like, so they believe you. Right. And uh, they know why, why they're, you know, doing the things that they need to do to stay healthy. Yeah. And I, Courtney, you know, one of the things I love about your work, whether it's at ATUH2 or, you know, we up, or we haven't even talked about your your recent podcast, which is called Human Eyes, which I encourage our listeners to check out. Uh, I listened to first couple episodes, and it was a wonderful conversation, and I learned a lot. You know, I think that for some people, when you look out at the world, whatever your situation is, it can feel uh, overwhelming. Uh, we work with a lot of people in our different communities at No Barriers that get overwhelmed with hopelessness. And what I love about your work, Courtney, is there's a lot of reasons to be hopeless, but you are making the choice, as you described, to be to be hopeful and to pursue routes to change the system and to 
figure out pathways forward through the work that you do. And so um, where can our listeners go to learn more about the different businesses that you've started? They can go on Instagram at Changing Healthcare. You can find me on Facebook. Again, Changing Healthcare, A2H2. That's one of our companies. Um, you can go on Instagram as well for my, my for-profit company, WeUp, WeUp underscore CBO. Um, you can look on the website for WeUp is weup.org and A2H2. You can find us at A2H2Hope.org. Awesome. Uh, Eric, why don't you close this out here? I know you've got one burning question left. Yeah, Courtney, so you're, you've not only started a nonprofit, but you, you're, you're starting a movement. You're beginning this movement with this mission, very powerful mission behind it. It's, it's similar to what Dave and I have been trying to do with No Barriers. Love it. So there are a lot of people out there that want to begin a movement, want to be part of a movement. What's some of the advice you might give people? You know, some of the hardships along the way, some of the practical advice that you might give people for some of the stuff you've learned. Find a need and fill it. I, I, I work at a school now, Eagle Rock, and that's one of the main things that they do. They say, find a need and fill it, you know, and, and do it in a, in a way that's unapologetic. There's a lot of reasons why companies and businesses and nonprofits and things of nature will fail. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, but if you don't risk failing, you will never succeed at anything. And so if you're trying to be comfortable, don't start one. If you're trying to be safe all the time, you shouldn't start one. But if you see a need that you're trying to address and you go into it knowing that you may fail, but it's worth that the attempt that's the first step towards true success, you know? And so the work that Dave and I do, of course we can fail. And we have failed along the way, but the community that we're working for deserves those kind of warriors that may get stabbed, may get shot. But uh, if I can draw breath, it's another day for me to walk towards success. And that's what you have to be fearless in your, in, in your desire to, to create a movement what movement are you trying to start and why are you passionate about it should be the questions that um, you address when you're trying to start a movement. That's beautiful. Well, Courtney, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. We are uh, real thrilled to have you on and you know, applaud your work and look forward to ways that maybe no bearers and, and the efforts you've started might work together in the future. So thank you for taking the time to join us today and happy holidays to you. I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Miss Pauline. Um, I appreciate the time. I'm so humbled by the opportunity. Much love. Thank you. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you. Good to know you. <laughs> Great to know you too. Peace. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman and marketing support by Heather Zocali, Stevie DiNardo, and Erica Hoey. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it here with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Oh my.